listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Let's pray. Father, we make this confession with our song, and we ask that by your Spirit it will be true of our hearts, this confession of dependence and need upon you. So speak to your people through your word that our worship of you might continue. We stand in the authority and power of Jesus. We pray against the enemy, his works and his effects that would seek to tear down to defame the glory of Jesus, to distract, to destroy. We stand in and hold fast to the finished and full and complete work of Jesus on our behalf. And we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would encourage and build up and teach and equip your people for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, River City. It's our joy to uh, worship together. Um, my name is Jake, and I serve River City through um, the preaching and teaching uh, and casting of some vision as to, uh, to the, how we as a local church can follow Jesus together. And so, but one of the ways we talk about that at River City, we join Jesus on his mission, is this is how we talk about it. We exist to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. In shorthand, disciples making disciples. And we see this mission of ours as an extension of Jesus' mission. He came to seek out and save the lost, which he tells us in Luke 19. And so... He commissions his disciples to carry that mission forward. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the the famous passage uh, often referred to as the Great Commission, after Jesus has risen from the grave, after he ascends, as he's ascending, right before he's ascending to sit at the right hand of the Father, Jesus gathers his disciples near to himself and he says this, as you go from here, make disciples. As I've called you to follow me, you too now call others to follow me, baptizing them and teaching them, and I will be with you, Jesus says, to the very end of the age. I will be with you to the last day. So our mission, in short, is just that, disciples making disciples. And it's an extension of this commission. As we follow Jesus, we invite others to follow Jesus. The reason I bring all that up today and why we're starting there is I think it's a a good setup for the part of our Bibles we're going to look at today. We're continuing in the Gospel of Luke. So you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. If you need a Bible, some folks from our strike team are coming around and can get you a Bible so you can follow along. Now as you're finding your way to Luke 22, just a little bit of a recap. Jesus and his disciples have gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover One of Jesus' disciples, Judas, has already committed to betraying Jesus. Jesus serves them a Passover meal and institutes the Lord's Supper. 
And then Jesus resets their expectations of what life in the kingdom is like. What does greatness look like? And then as we looked at last week, Jesus reminds Peter and the others that they have an enemy, Satan, who seeks their destruction, but that Jesus intercedes for them. And even though, as Pastor Devin preached last week, Peter will fail, which we'll see come to life here in just a few verses, really, he will also be restored. And just as Jesus said, he will not only be an encouragement to his brothers, but he will be an encouragement to the other disciples, Peter himself The failure, Peter, will be used mightily of God to advance the kingdom and to grow the church. And all these things that Jesus says to his disciples is for us a little bit of a window into a deeper biblical and kingdom reality. That there's nourishment for our souls as well in the remembrance of God's covenant promises that we look at and the fullness of them in the the Lord's Supper There's a sobering reality for us that is both sobering and hopeful that God is sovereign over all things, that God is working all things, even the sinful actions of men and of devils, to accomplish his purposes and to bring glory to himself. That's hopeful for us. It's hopeful for us. It's a little snapshot into the access we have to God's power in the kingdom as we live as sojourners in this world and citizens of that kingdom. And in our text this morning, Jesus gives one more thing to his disciples before they go to the garden, before Jesus is betrayed. One more thing he tells them before everything now changes and everything marching toward the cross gets set into motion. So I want to invite you to follow along. Luke chapter 22, we're only going to read a few verses today, verses 35 through 38. (coughs) Excuse me. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 35, hear the word of the Lord this morning. And he, Jesus, says to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Now, maybe you picked up on it, but there's a word here in our four-verse text that changes the trajectory of everything for the disciples to this point. You find this little word in verse 36. It's only three letters, but it packs a punch. See the word? It's the word, but. B-U-T. Three letters draw a big old line in the sand, don't they? It's a contrasting word. I used to be the tallest person in my house. But my 15-year-old has now passed me. I'm fine with that, mostly. Right? When I come home after maybe working out, or aren't we all longing for like a hot summer day? Can I get an amen? Right? You're out mowing the lawn, and you come in, and it's like you're sweating. And I go, and I go to give my wife a hug, and she's like, I love you, but go take a shower first. That butt draws a line, right? Like right there. 
Or this one, when you were a kid, your mom or your dad is the one who did your laundry. But now you're an adult, so you got to cook your own food and do your own laundry, right? Those three letters, but, draw a contrasting line. Something either has changed or is going to change. And in Luke 22, Jesus is drawing a line, a contrasting line between how life has been to this point with his disciples and how life is going to be going forward. The big change is, that, is, is not that the, the world is going to be hostile. It's already hostile. Jesus is saying, but you're going to feel it. Jesus is saying to his disciples, the road doesn't feel as hard maybe right now because I'm with you, but when that changes, you're going to feel it. And I think this is not only for the disciples, but it's for you and me because we live in the same place between Jesus' glorious resurrection and his glorious soon return. We live in this same place window. So, so here's the big idea today. <clears throat> the world is hostile and hard, but Jesus wins. The world is hostile and the road is hard, but Jesus wins. That's the lens I want to look at this text through today. And I've, I've broken the, the sermon up into kind of two main ideas. There's the story that Jesus is telling in the text, and then there's the, the so what but what do I do with this interesting little part of the gospel? The story and the, the so what. There's a few things happening in the gospel account, in the story, and then there's a few things that the disciples, and I think you and I can take away, that's the so what, that will hopefully encourage and equip us as Jesus' disciples. So first, let's look at the story that Jesus is, is telling here in Luke's gospel. The story that he's telling, I think, has three parts here. There's transition, trouble, and triumph. These things are happening in the story, in these four verses that Jesus is telling. First, look at verse 35 again, Luke 22, verse 35. And he says to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. And Jesus says to them, but now... Let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Jesus is opening this time with his disciples, his closing parting words to them in the upper room is, that was then, this is now. He's talking about a transition. Something's changed and is changing. So what was Jesus talking about when he said, when I sent you out before? Well, there's two instances we have in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10. You can turn there if you'd like, Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. I'm just going to read a little bit. Jesus calls the 12 together, Luke tells us, Luke 9, verse 1, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And Jesus says to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So Jesus sends out the 12, his 12 disciples, to heal the sick 
to pray for those who are being oppressed by demonic forces, and to proclaim the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, take nothing extra with you. Don't bring extra money. Don't bring extra food. Don't bring an extra coat, which is the exact opposite thing that Midwestern parents tell their children in the winter. Please put on a coat. Or at least put it in the car. They're like, but I'm not hot. And you're like, yeah, but we could die on the freeway as we were all conditioned. The car could break down. You need a coat. At least put it in the car. Jesus does not say that. He says, don't bring anything extra. Go in my name. Say what you've heard me say and do what you've seen me do and watch God do miraculous things and provide for you. And that's what happens. <laughs> Likewise, in Luke chapter 10, so the 12 come back with all kinds of glorious reports. Luke chapter 10, Jesus gathers now 72 disciples of his. So it's not just the 12, but there's others, the outer ring of people who are following Jesus around. And he's like, hey, you go do this too. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1. After this, Luke tells us, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then Jesus says this to the 72, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Here's the instructions. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Those instructions sound remarkably the same as Luke chapter 9. Don't bring a money bag. Don't bring extra sandals. Go where I send you. Speak peace to the places you go, and the Lord will provide. And here in Luke 22, Jesus asks... When I sent you before, did you lack anything? Did you go hungry? Did you have to sleep out in the, in the streets? Did you get beat up? Were you cold? Did you lack anything? And the disciples say, no, Lord, we, we lacked nothing. We had everything that we needed. And then Jesus draws the line. But now. Here's the transition. Jesus says, But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. But now, the support, the supply, and the security you had when I was with you will not be the same when I am gone. So Jesus says a couple things that is it almost in direct contrast to the instructions he gave them before. He says, Take a money bag, a knapsack, and a sword. Here's Here's part of what I think Jesus means in giving these instructions. Two, two things, actually. One, I think they are literal, tangible items. Money bag, backpack, sword. Tangible items. And I think they represent some things. Money bag. This is support, right? Small bag, you'd keep your coins in. This is your wallet or your purse. Jesus is saying to them, for the work ahead, there's some practical means of needing support. We use this language all the time for church planters or supporting a missionary or a ministry. Jackie, wherever you're at, uh, you have a team of people who support you and support you financially. That's a money bag of sorts, right? They raise support, dollars to fund the mission. 
Jesus is saying, right now while I'm with you, people are happy to support you. That might not always be the case. So grab your wallet or your purse. That's what Jesus says. Two, he says, also your knapsack. This is, we don't call it that anymore. It's essentially a bag, a backpack, a satchel. For those of you who are, you know, one strap over the shoulder people. You're going to need to carry some gear with you. You might need a tent. You might need a spare tunic. You might need some tools. You might need a fishing pole or a net to, to get your own dinner. Jesus is saying. It used to be others were happy to supply what you needed, and they still might be, but they also might not be. That's the second thing he says. And three, if you don't have a sword, get a sword. This is their safety and security. Now, in the ancient Near East, a rabbi and his students would not usually carry a sword. It just wasn't the kind of people that they were. Travelers, merchants, soldiers, troublemakers, they all carried swords. But Jesus is saying there are going to be some who might attack you. You're going to be in some places you've not been. You're going to be alone in the dark on some roads in some foreign place that you might be at risk. So even just the sword on your hip itself tells someone else of the kind of person that you are. You're going to have to be aware of your surroundings and mindful of the dangers of the world that you maybe haven't thought of before. There was a time when your safety maybe was taken for granted, but this is now. So the question is, well, what's going on here? What, what's the difference between what Jesus says to them in Luke 9 and 10, where he's like, everything's provided for you, and here where he's like, get a sword? What's going on here? I think two things. I think one, Jesus is reminding them to remember the supernatural provision of God. When, when I sent you out, God provided everything. In fact, if you look all through the gospel accounts, time after time, the Father's divine provision just shines through all of the workings of Jesus and the disciples over and over again to bring about all that God has, has ordained. So what's changing? What's different now? That was then, Jesus is saying, this is now. What's changing now is that you're going to have trouble that maybe you didn't have before, or at least you didn't see it. That's the second part of this story. The transition now is that there's going to be a different kind of trouble. Jesus has always said things that his disciples didn't quite understand. And even here, they're soon going to find out what he means. In John chapter 15, Jesus says this, John 15, verse 18. He goes, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus is saying, the trouble that I told you was coming here it is. We haven't experienced it yet, but you soon will. To this point, the Pharisees have not been able to, to touch Jesus. Satan and his demons have cowered under the voice of Jesus and under his name at every turn. Sickness, disease, even death itself cannot prevail in the presence of Jesus. And he says, I've empowered you to do this kind of ministry. But trouble is coming. The world that is in bondage to sin, the world that, that sits under the authority of the prince of the power of the air, 
That world hates me, Jesus says, and it hates you because you belong to me. If they persecuted you, they, or excuse me, if they persecuted me, they will for sure persecute you. That's why this transition, this warning of the coming trouble is important. Because to this point, the disciples have experienced very little persecution, direct persecution. Now, there have been impatient crowds. There have been jeers of religious leaders who have, who have tried to trap Jesus and be like, hey, why are you doing what you're doing to the disciples? But at every turn, they lose. At every, at every turn, those who are attacking Jesus and his disciples fall flat. And rather than success, they fail. The success is found in the people who are untouchable and unlovable, who are drawn into the sphere of Jesus' love, who get healed and saved and reconciled, and they end up bowing their knees and trusting in Jesus. They turn away from their sin and they say yes to the mercy of God offered in Christ. Over and over again, all the disciples have known is winning. Jesus just keeps Winning. And so they spent all this time with Jesus on the winning team, and they're winning, and they're winning big, which is why they're like, hey, when you come into your kingdom, do we get in on that? Do we get to sit next to you? Can we rule with you? Do you see the perspective that they have? Because they just keep winning. And Jesus is like, it just might not look like you think it's going to look. Winning is going to look different. And I think Jesus is prepping his disciples for the trouble ahead. Because the advancement of the kingdom of God is going to come about through trouble rather than tranquility. Jesus and his disciples are going to win and win big, but not through comfort, but through crucifixion. Later in John chapter 16, Jesus says this, after he tells them, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. John 16, I have said these things to you, all these things I've told you, that in me, Jesus says, you might have peace. Not in your circumstances, not in how you are perceived by others. In me, you will have peace. In this world, Jesus promises, you will have tribulation. That's a fun promise, isn't it? Here's the other part to it. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Overcome, that's, that's victory language. That's winning. In the, in the arc of the story that Jesus is telling his disciples here, that's triumph. Transition, trouble, and triumph. Jesus is essentially saying, this is how I ultimately win. Look at verse 37, Luke 22, back to Luke 22. He says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes Isaiah 53. Here's the quote, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Isaiah 53, Alex read earlier, I had him read the whole thing. Sorry, Alex, you had to read the whole thing. Isaiah 53 might be one of the richest Old Testament prophetic passages speaking about Jesus that we have. Isaiah 53 is quoted six different times in the New Testament. Now, there's lots of Old Testament prophecy concerning Jesus, but Isaiah 53 is just remarkable, absolutely remarkable. And Jesus says here, everything that you know, my beloved disciples, everything you know is changing. You're transitioning to a time of trouble. There's, 
transitioning to a time of trouble. And then he says this, four. Four. That four is because, it's a because word. Why? Why are we now shifting to a time of trouble? For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled. Why is this happening? Because this scripture must be fulfilled. What scripture? Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, Isaiah writes, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. In fact, Jesus says it twice. The scripture must be fulfilled in me. Then he quotes the scripture that he was numbered with the transgressors. And then he says, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus is saying this whole chapter of Isaiah 53 is pointing to me. It's about me. We, we look at the man of sorrows acquainted with grief and we're like, yes, I get that. And here in verse 12 of Isaiah 53, not only is Jesus a friend of sinners, not only did Jesus die the death a thief deserved on the cross, but here's the key. Jesus, the perfect son of the Father, was placed into the category of transgressor. He was counted a sinner. The perfect one, the spotless one, the sinless one, is counted a sinner. And then Jesus took the punishment for sinners himself. The Apostle Paul says it this way. For our sake, Paul writes, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Father treats the Son like a sinner so that sinners become sons. To be called and counted among sinners, transgressor, is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53. All the hatred, all the anger, all the hostility that would condemn an innocent Jesus to a criminal's brutal death on a cross, all of the hatred and the anger that would carry through to his disciples. Tradition holds that of the 11 disciples who remained after Judas, 10 of them were brutally killed for their public faith in Jesus. As it is for you and for me that everyone who bears the name of Jesus, everyone who preaches the gospel of Jesus, every rejection and any persecution for the name is a direct fulfillment of what God said would happen. And Jesus says it must happen this way. This is how I win. I am marked as a transgressor, and I bear what is owed sinners, and I win. So Jesus is saying, his, my, my betrayal is coming. My death is coming. The world hates you because they hate the Father, and they hate you because they hate me. But Isaiah said it, I'm the fulfillment. This is how I win. This is how Jesus is victorious. I bear the trouble, Jesus says. I die, and in my death, I kill death, and I rise again, and I win. Now, the disciples didn't quite 
understand, as is per their tradition so far, exactly what Jesus meant. Look at verse 38. They look around and they say, look, Lord, here are two swords. We've got two of them. And Jesus says, it's enough. Now, is he saying two swords is enough for 11, we're not counting Judas, 11 guys? Or is Jesus maybe, one commentary I read said that maybe Jesus is getting a little frustrated, like this conversation is over, it is enough. You guys don't quite get it. However it is, the question has to be asked, like what are the disciples thinking? Well, they're like, well, you said get a sword. We got a couple. Is that enough? Is God going to stop providing for us? His disciples are probably thinking. I think Jesus is just reminding them, of God's provision. He's encouraging them that, yes, God will provide, but your lives will not be as comfortable as they were before. You're going to have to trust in God even more and maybe even be content with less. The road is going to be difficult. Responsibility will be greater. The costs will be higher. And as he said in John 16, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That, I think, is the story that Jesus is writing and telling the disciples as he prepares them for what's going to happen next. But how does it move from just a part of the narrative in the life of Jesus to, for us, a so what? Like, what? so what? What do we do with a narrative, a passage like this? Two takeaways, I think, for us. Two things. Remember and run. Remember and run. First, we need to remember that what Jesus says to his disciples applies to us. In trouble and in triumph, God will provide. The promise of Jesus to his disciples in John 16 is a promise for us as well. You, in this world, you will have trouble. That trouble is going to take many forms, but you will have trouble. John 15, the world hates you, it's because they hated me first. Newsflash, you will have trouble. The world will often hate you, or more accurately, hate the Jesus in you, and this should not surprise us. That's how Jesus described it in Luke 10, when he sent out the 72, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. So we have to remember that we are being sent out into a world of trouble, That's the first thing we have to remember. And we also have to remember that Jesus is with us and will provide. Because you might look at a passage like this and say, well, Jesus says, save up some money, get some supplies, sounds like emergency food storage to me, get a sword, and maybe I should get a variety of calibers of sword. Someone in the first service said amen to that. And I was like, nine mil is mostly universal, so that's probably good. Right? And hear hear me, I'm, I'm down with that. Seriously, but, but, but let me just ask you a couple of questions as it relates to that. Who provides the money that you and I might put in our wallet or our bank account? Where does that come from? Do, do you, did you create your own mind or your own hands to be able to think or do the things that you do, that you, that you put into, into to practice, to earn a living? Did, did you create these? No. God created you. He gifted you to do that so that you do those things according to the way he's wired you and made you. And then at the end of the month, some money shows up. 
because you did some stuff. But, but God made those hands, and God gave you that ability. Who grows the grain that you would grind into meal and make bread with? Who, who, who watches the cow give birth to its young that later produces that brisket that you're going to put in your smoker? Did you do that? You did not do that. You did not create that delicious animal. God did that, right? Who protects you from your enemies, as the scripture says, and is our rear guard? Are you the strong man? You're not. Neither am I. That's Christ Jesus. So so hear me. There's work to do. There are supplies to steward, and there's a family to protect and provide for. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Yes, Jesus says, you are going to need to think about how you're going to support yourself. You're going to have to make plans for supply, not only for you, but also for your families. You're going to have to be concerned about the safety and security of your family and the people you love and the people in your community. All of that is true and wise and a good application of what Jesus is telling his disciples. And don't forget that the kingdom of God is not advanced primarily by the one that has the largest bank account or the biggest storehouses. And unlike other religions and cults, Christianity is not advanced by the one who has the biggest guns. It's not. The gospel advances through the world, through his church, through the proclamation of the word, and more often than not, it is actually persecution and trouble that is the vehicle for gospel expansion. In fact, the entire book of Acts, which was also written by Luke, the one who wrote Luke's gospel that we're looking at, Acts tells us over and over and over again, Christians are persecuted and they are pressed and the gospel multiplies and advances. Christians experience trouble from the world and supernatural provision and blessing from God and the gospel multiplies and advances. And with every trouble, the kingdom of God takes on new ground and it crosses boundaries it wouldn't normally cross. Acts chapter 8, Stephen is stoned to death. The disciples remain in Jerusalem. You know where the rest of the Christians go? They scatter. And the gospel multiplies to a place it would not have gone as readily if they had not been scattered by what was happening in Jerusalem. This is how the kingdom advances. This is how we win. So the first takeaway, the first so what for us, is to remember that in trial and triumph, God will provide. And the second is this. Because Jesus is faithful to provide, because Jesus has overcome the world and is building his church, then you and I are free to run. Here's what I mean when I say run. Hebrews chapter 12 says, since we as God's people, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, brothers and sisters who with their very lives proclaim the gospel and the glory and faithfulness of God, because we have this reminder, Hebrews says, let us throw aside, put down every weight and every sin that would hinder us, that clings so closely. And Hebrews says, let us run with perseverance, with endurance, what? The race that he sets before us. This thing that he's called us to, this life, we run it with confidence and humility and hope because he's provided everything 
we need. So that's the second so what, if you will, from this passage. Remembering and running. To run with perseverance. Because I think a passage like this, especially viewed in light of the current reality, the culture in which we live, can cause us to either shrink back in fear. Like we look at the world around us and we are like, what is going on? This world is crazy. And our first response is to shrink back in fear. Or, still in fear, light everything on fire. I think fear drives us to either get scared or go scorched earth. And I think both are fearful responses rather than faithful ones. Let me, let me unpack that a little. A scared or a fearful response to hearing, hey, this is going to be hard. The world hates you. There's going to be trouble. A fearful response says, well, I, but I don't want trouble. <laughs> I did not sign up for trouble. I signed up for potlucks and community. That's what I signed up for. Did not sign up for trouble. Don't want trouble. And because there's often this latent fear of man, fear of what someone else might think of me, we shrink back and we avoid anything that might cause someone else to respond negatively to us or that might be cause for persecution. So there's no running, really. It's only hiding. Fear causes us to shrink back. And we can't do that. But fear also does something else. The other side of that coin, fear causes us to go scorched earth. You know what I mean when I say that? It's like finding a spider in the basement and the solution is to burn the whole house down. That's what I mean. Some of you are like, depending on the size of the spider, that might be a good solution. I don't know. My kids might think that. No burning the house down, guys. But I think we do this. I think fear drives this too, where we... Go scorched earth. And I think we do that when our primary identity is in something other than who we are as sons and daughters. If our primary identity is as disciples, as members of Christ and members of Christ's body and members of his church, if that's our primary identity, I think that holds us off from going scorched earth. But if our identity is in anything else, anything else. I don't care if it's political affiliations, some kind of subgroup or special interest. We end up, according to those identities, drawing lines in places, and then we burn down everything that doesn't fit inside those lines. I think that's fear. I think that's fear-driven. It causes us to draw our identity lines, our primary identity lines, in places that Jesus doesn't draw them, rather than using the lines that Jesus uses. He's like, there are those who belong to me and there's those who don't. And the mission of those who belong to me is to proclaim the gospel to those who don't so that those who don't might hear by God's mercy and according to God's eternal decree might respond in faith and join the family. So the application, I think, for us is to not shrink back in fear and not out of fear go scorched earth, but to run with endurance the race that he sets before us, to take up the mission and calling that Jesus has given us. And we've asked this question a number of times over these last few weeks in Luke. Where has God placed you? It is no mistake that you're here in this room this morning. And it's not a marketing pitch. I believe this. 
Where has God placed you? What race has he called us to run? And how might we run it together? To take up the mission and calling that Jesus has given us. This past week, I, I had the privilege of being able to spend a few days with some other Acts 29 pastors. I'm a part of a cohort. Uh, we try to get together twice a year for encouragement. Um, these other guys are all from the Midwest. Uh, they serve churches that are similar in size and age to River City. And so we, we ask questions and share ideas and strategy and some of that, learn from one another. But, but more than strategic, it's always an encouraging and refreshing time for my heart to spend time with these brothers and to hear how God's at work in other places. One of my biggest takeaways from our time together, for me, just this week, was just this simple reminder that Jesus is building his church. Jesus is at work building his church. Just like here, I can share those same stories about, about in the midst of difficulty and personal hardship that some of you in this room are enduring and yet seeing Jesus be faithful to you and grow you, the things that you and I are walking through. And in the midst of our current political and social reality, which seems, to quote Pastor Devin, seems bananas, right? Like we look around at the world around us and we are like, it is bananas. Like, am I really seeing this? Did that really get tweeted? Right? Like, these are the things that we, we see. And in the midst of that, to be reminded that Jesus is building his church, and, and what's more, that the gates of hell cannot stand against it. I, I needed that reminder this week. That's the that's reality. Maybe you need to be reminded of that as well. So when we're tempted to freak out, when we're tempted to fear, we can remember the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. He provides. And that what he provides is enough. And we can run with passion, with humble confidence, not in ourselves, but in our good and providential God. We can run to pursue this mission to which he's called us. We can engage with our family and with our neighbors, with hospitality. We can be self-sacrificial in our generosity with others. And we can courageously stand for truth and speak the truth in love in a world that does not want to hear it. But we can do that. And just as Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's to come for them, the Spirit of God is preparing us for what's in front of us. You think there's anything in front of us that freaks him out? That's going to catch him by surprise? That's rhetorical. The answer is no. No. Let me close with this. The Apostle Peter, the one whom uh, Pastor Devin reminded us last week, the one who's going to be sifted by Satan, the one who's going to fail, deny our Lord, the one who's going to weep over his sin, is going to be restored. He would strengthen his brothers and strengthen the church. And in fact, Peter writes two letters to encourage Christians who have been persecuted, who have been scattered. So Peter, the failure, writes this. 1 Peter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. I think that fits right in with what Jesus is telling his disciples. There's a readiness I'm preparing in you for what's to come. 
and set your hope fully. No hope in any other thing. Set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus. That's my hope for us. So that we can look with clear and sober eyes at the things that are in front of us. Not with fear, but with faith. And with courage and conviction that we might run the race that God has set before us. As disciples where he's planted us and running together here at River City. Proclaiming the gospel that we might be tools in the hands of Jesus as he does his work to seek out and save the lost and to build his church. As my friend and mentor, Pastor Steve Treichler says, so that we might go into the kingdom of darkness and trash the joint. I love it. The world is hostile and the road is hard, but Jesus wins. And that's enough. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you are indeed enough. That you are absolutely, as your word says, and we submit to it, you are working all things. to accomplish your will for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. We confess we do not always see that. We confess that we are more prone to to fear than maybe we'd like. And so we ask you would renew and strengthen your people. That we would know take to heart and even receive the trouble that's promised us and we would stand firm in the promise that you have overcome the world. I pray even this morning that you would renew and refresh your people, your church through the Lord's table. Remind us of the the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, that you were numbered with the transgressors, that you bore in your body on the tree the sin and the weight and the shame so that we might be forgiven and washed clean. Renew us and strengthen us for your glory and for the race that you've placed in front of us that we might run. Encourage us now as we come to the table. Amen.